we are told that we are selfish. Motherhood is selfless. Now that is the biggest lie. Because the way we are doing it right now is completely self-absorbed, right? We don't see how we are using our children to be all that we could never be and the best versions of the best person that we could never even be. And how when that child is not, how we get so upset, how we get so disgruntled, how we project onto them, right? And that's what conscious parenting teaches is how are you using your child to complete yourself? How are you not seeing that this child is completely their own ultimate sovereign authority? And they have really no obligation to you. They have no obligation to you. And parents will go, but I raised them. And I go, yeah, you raised them. You did it. Now, if they do respect you, it should come not out of obligation. It should come out of a natural bonding and connection. Hi. I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. Years ago on a podcast, talking about parenting and talking about parenting in a way I had never, ever heard anyone speak about it before. Uh, just as a backstory, if you don't know this about me already, I have four children. I had my first child when I was 24, which now seems just absolutely wild. So this is a, a long history for me and a big part of my life. And deeply ingrained in my culture that this was my job as a woman was to be a mom. And that creates all sorts of interesting perspectives. So I would love to talk about how did you get into this work of conscious parenting? Could you just like give us a full roadmap of who you are and what you do? Sure, sure. So like most of us in our generation, I too thought that parenthood was something that would come naturally, intuitively. You just have to be loving and have some patience and you and kind of financially secure. And I had checked all those boxes and I would be fine. However, once I began doing two things, first, I became a clinical psychologist and began working with parents before I became a mom and I realized, oh, this, this parent is checking off all the boxes and that one is doing the same thing, but they're in deep shit, right? They don't know how to do this thing and they are in so much trouble. However, because I had not yet become a mom, I had this superior attitude that psychologists have in abundance as well <laughs> and non-parents, right? We're so superior. We're like, oh, this parent, even though they check off the boxes, they're just not doing this right because they're just, you know, inferior. Then I became a mom. And 
everything just fell apart, really, because no matter how many boxes I checked, I checked even some extra ones, like a meditator from the age of 21, uh, a clinical psychologist, I had three bloody master's degrees. And by like the time my daughter was six weeks old, I was done. I was like, okay, it was so nice knowing you and thank you for the experience and go back like wherever you came from. I just couldn't do it emotionally, psychologically. But then I felt so much shame for all the reasons of my checking extra boxes. I had no one to talk to and it wasn't talked about. And so I I plowed through, I plowed through. But by the time she became like a human who had needs and an attitude and an opinion by the, you know, 12 month mark, when we begin calling them terrible twos for a good reason, I was just not doing this right. And I then had a come to Jesus moment where it hit me that all my meditation on the mat and all my psychobabble to all my clients and that ego that I was battling in my spirituality was actually showing up here in parenting. But no one talked about the parental ego. So I was like, am I the only human who is so evil that she has this big ass ego with her kid? Am I the only cruel, evil mother who's so deficient that her ego is showing up and her daughter is not even like two years old? And I felt guilt. But then upon doing deeper work, I realized, wow, this is the best kept secret. Like no one talks about this thing, this monster called the parental ego. So I began to talk about it and I began losing all my clients. I began, (laughs) my income went down. My, My husband at that time was like, hello, this is not good for business. You do not tell a parent that they have an ego. And I, I just had such a spiritual metamorphosis, though, in my own motherhood. I knew this was the truth that was not being talked about. And that's what I, when I wrote my first book, The Conscious Parent, which really was met by crickets. No one, I think maybe two people bought it for the entire first year. But then one brave mother, and it was the women, I have to say, and another brave mother began to call me, write to me and say, oh my goodness, you're right. It's my shit. It's my crap. It's my ego. It's the way I am looking at this being in all the wrong ways that is creating the dysfunction. And then, you know, then Oprah picked it up and then, you know, I would like to say the rest is history, but it continued to be, it continued and continues to be an uphill battle. Parents to realize that their dysfunction and their disconnection with their children has nothing or very little to do with the child and all to do with themselves. So that's been my journey. And I practice conscious parenting, uh, you know, a bit a bit late. I, I discovered it by the time my daughter was two or three, began implementing it. So she's my guinea pig, I tell her. And uh, I'm so grateful. And I've, I've, I've saved a lot for her therapy. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I have been able to salvage quite a bit because of the power of conscious parenting. There is a way out of this madness called parenting, but it can only be through conscious parenting. I mean, I just, yeah. I just don't see any other way. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley 
with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. I want to imagine that every listener is super evolved on the spiritual journey, but for someone who's just kind of dipping their toe in the water, I feel like it's important for us to say when we talk about ego, we don't mean like egotistical. We don't mean what society would commonly use that word for. Could you kind of unpack what the ego is for us as human beings and then how it shows up as parents? Yeah, what a great question. So the ego, as I talk about it and few others, is the self that we create to get the love and worth that did not come organically in childhood. So when we are born, I like to think of ourselves as the most whole, where we come to manifest who it is we are without any compunction, without regret, no guilt, no shame. We're just ready to be. And if you and you have, but if your readers have observed their very young children, very young children just are. They just are in their own organic authenticity and they are in the moment. But culture has told us that that is simply not good enough and we need to do to become in order to receive trust, approval, validation. Now, that is where the rubber meets the road and the child quickly, because the child knows it needs to survive, quickly realizes it needs to trade its authenticity in this barter and exchange program uh, for connection, for survival, for its needs to be met. And the degree to which it does that trade, you know, the delta between who it organically is versus who it needs to become is what determines its initial disconnect. And determines on how, you know, it's based on how conscious its parents are. We all grow up with a delta, but how wide that delta is between our organic authenticity and the egoic false self that we have to put on, the masks that we have to put on, that delta determines how messed up we are in life, you know, and how long our search will be to come back home to our authentic selves. So the ego is a representation of all the masks we have to wear, the mask of pleaser, the the super compliant one, the obedient one, the silent one, the achiever, the comedian, you know, the superhero, the savior. There's so many masks that we wear in order to desperately hold on to the shards and crumbs of worth that we believe we need. Actually, we don't need any of it, but of course, in childhood, we do. So that's where the foundation gets... Uh, 
cracked and then the crack just becomes an abyss and a void, sometimes too deep by the time we're in our 30s. And uh, now we try to fill that void, but we don't look inward because all our life we've looked outward. So we fill it with, you know, the prescription pills or the addiction, the substance abuse, the relationships, looking, looking, looking for that which was our birthright, but was stolen from us. So an example of this that I'm thinking of is in my culture, like Southern culture, I grew up inside of a really conservative church. The role of a little girl was to be a good girl. And a good girl came with very specific uh, ideas about how she showed up, right? So she was quiet. She should be seen and not heard. She should be beautiful. She should have, you know, well-mannered and all of these things. And by the way, that was exactly what my mom was told and her mom before her. And I just want to sort of make this connection for people that it's like such a big thing to unpack if you haven't ever thought about it before. But it's not necessarily that those are the right way to be. It's that the culture you were born inside of believes that that is the right way to be. This is how boys are supposed to function. This is how girls are supposed to function. This is what it means. And it's coming into a parent or two parents or a whole family, right, who has an idea about the way they want you to show up that starts when you're very little. So it's don't yell, don't make noise, don't be so loud, don't be so high energy. And you sort of learn to conform because we need, you said when when we're little, we need that connection. That's how you stay alive. You need someone to give you food and shelter and water and keep you safe. Just for listeners who maybe haven't done as much of this work, I would love for them to make the connection to possibly who they're who they are in their spirit or maybe who they're discovering they are now that they're a bit older versus who mama told them they needed to be or who daddy said that they needed to be. Because what I think we find, and I just you know know your work, is that then we take that same stuff and put it on our own kids, right? It's just this cyclical thing. It keeps happening for generations. 100%. So we take that false self we mistake it to be our true selves, and we'll talk about how to know the difference. And then we put that false self into our parenting, into our marriage, into our relationships. And now we're operating out of false self. And then we don't realize, but the other person is pretty much in their false self too. Or as a parent, we then help curate the kid's false self. So now the kid is in their ego because they're in flight or fight. They are trying to survive. We are in fight or flight, but no one knows it except when all things fall apart. The kid is failing, you have a terminal illness, you have a divorce pending. That's when you have a potential reckoning, when your ego is ready to crumble. But what typically happens in those moments is that we kind of buckle down even more and become even more toxic, you know, because we're so scared of that ego crumbling. So what happens with girls especially, and I think every Indian girl grew up in your church, happens is that we girls, and I'm talking very stereotypically, okay, the female, because of her physiology, because of her childbearing capacities, she's been endowed with these nurturing hormonal tendencies. Whether we like it or not, we have oxytocin, we have the love hormone, we have the connecting hormone, we have milk that can be lactated from. We have the womb 
all that physiologically sets us up psychologically to be natural caregivers and pleasers. That's just natural. It's kind of a chip. But culture marauds that and teaches us that our giving to the other needs to now be giving of the whole self. And that's where that line gets crossed. You and I may really be genuinely sweet and kind people, but we are sweet and kind to the point of self-abnegation and self-destruction and self-loathing. That is where it becomes toxic, where we are not taught to tap in and tune in and look into ourselves. And we teach our children the same way, right? So because we were never honoring of the self, because we were never self-governing, we don't teach that skill to our children. So in very subtle ways, from the age of two and three, when our children say, mommy, what should I do? You're like, oh, do this and this and this and this. And we plan their whole day and we instruct them, we opinionate, we sermonize, and we call it education. No, what we are doing is an abduction of our children's self. We are participating in each other's self-abduction and we don't realize it because we haven't come back home. So that's what conscious parenting is, is about a severe deconstruction and an awareness of how we have taken on prescriptions of culture that are lies and that are toxic, especially for, for parents. You know, things like, uh, I'm only as happy as my least happy child. You know, that's total bullshit. You know, you shouldn't be as your least happy child. What nonsense is that, right? It's codependence, but yeah. That, right? But it sounds so noble, you know? Uh, or like, oh my goodness, I can't live without my kid. Or, you know, so, you know, when I was dropping my kid off to college, like that was like my... My, my, my moment, you know, it was my moment. But no, I had to act like, oh, now, of course, I was going to miss her. But I was not dying. But every other parent was looking like they were dying. I was like, come on, this is like, let's go and have a drink. We made it. But culture, you know, demonizes the mother, especially if she has her own authentic spirit and life. But that's really healthy. Like my, I do believe that it's healthy for my child to see that my happiness doesn't depend on her and her, her life and her dreams and her manifestations, sure, may consume me at times, but they don't define me. But I think as mothers, especially because of that whole, you know, good girl syndrome, we believe that our identity is to be a mother first. And I, I don't do that anymore. I did till I realized how toxic it was. And I debunked that, I shed that. And for me now, my main goal in life is to be me <laughs> and right. to be more authentically myself because in that is the health that I set others free from because I'm free of them, they are free of me. And that's liberation and that's true connection where we're not identifying each other's emotional well-being on the other. What's so interesting too is that I think most let's just use mothers because that is predominantly who's going to listen to this conversation. Most mothers, I think if they're healthy and rational, would not want their child to be dealing with the same toxic ideology around codependency, around parenting. They would not want their kid to have these things, to still be dealing with these things 20 years from now. And not understanding that the way, at least from my perspective, that we can have the most whole, healthy, happy children is to become the most whole, healthy, happy human being. Mm 
So it's this cultural thing of if you try and work on yourself, figure out yourself, separate yourself from the children, then you're selfish. But what is the alternative that you spend all of this time being a mom and you get to the day where your kid goes to college and you you have no sense of self, you have no identity outside of being their parent, and you've made nothing for yourself. Like the amount of women in my community who are like, I, I don't, I have nothing. I have no passion. I have no hobby. I have no, all I do is take care of the kids. And it's no wonder that they're burnout and they're discouraged. And in some cases they're super bitter, but at the same time, they won't take the time to invest or care for themselves. Is that because that's the example that we had or why does that end up happening? Well, it is because of, of what we've been trained to do, which is to be in enmeshed relationships. And we kind of equate that to be health, especially with our children. So we truly use our children, quote unquote, as substances to distract us until they leave the house and then we're depressed. That's the prototypical trajectory of the woman who hasn't given herself the gift and the liberation to explore her own identity outside of it. So right. we become these over-involved, over-controlling, over-helicoptering parents. What, what we don't realize is that, yes, our kid may see us less, but what they're seeing is a very fulfilled human being. So we have to do a slight trade-off where we can be absent, but so present in our own bodies and our own joy versus being present 24-7, but absent of joy and presence, right? So we, there's a trade-off. And when we, of course, our children are our first priority because they need us. But as they become six or seven, it's really important to to end that enmeshment and create individuation. So to expect rebellion, right? So like you said, we want our children to be joyful. We also want our children to be empowered. But that empowerment means they will separate from you. They will individuate from you. They will rebel against you. They will defy you. They will say no to you. They will, they will call you on your bullshit because that is the empowered adult, right? Who can call bullshit. But we don't want that. Because we're so insecure that that means we will be null and void. But actually, when we are convinced of our own belonging, of our own self-belonging, then we allow defiance and are actually not even rattled by it, but we welcome it. We honor it. We, we, we see it as imperative when our children are flying and, and leaving the coop. So... Adolescent rebellion, toddler rebellion, to, you know, whatever word you want to call it, is actually healthy. It is natural individuation that absolutely must occur in order for our children to understand that they are their own being and they are not us and they don't live for us. But we need to give them those keys to set themselves free and uncage themselves. And most parents have their tentacles into their kid's psyche, you know, and it's as subtle as, Mommy, what should I eat for lunch? Now, of course, we are not a hotel and we can't give a buffet meal every time. But we can say something as simple as, oh, you know, I have a couple options, but what does your body say it needs? Just that fine tuning or, or when your kid is going to college, mom, what should I major in? And you, before you jumping in, you go, hmm, what, what, would, what would your inner voice say? Or mom, where should I go to college? Hmm, I don't know. What does your inner voice say? Just that little pause allows children to know 
that they have a voice that they need to listen to and then listen to ours, but if they want, but they have their own voice. Where is that voice? And that daily dedication to honing our children's inner voice takes a lot of courage from the parent because that means you have to freaking listen to that voice. And most of <laughs> most of the times that voice is a more, you know, an idiotic voice, <laughs> you know, or the voice just says, I don't know, I don't yeah. know, right? <laughs> That's all she says all day, I don't know. And I go, well, you got to know. Go dig in more, right? I know exactly what she needs to eat, do, or think, but I, I have to resist that because we have to let the children plow through their own fog to arrive at their answer. It's painful as a parent because they're really like clueless. And you're like, can you just do this, right? We know what they should do. But that's not what a conscious parent needs to do. A conscious parent needs to step back and let the children discover. That process of discovery is what I teach really in conscious parenting. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Guys, no two listeners of the show are exactly alike, which means that no two vacations you take are going to be exactly alike either. And if you're looking for a place that will serve all of you, Texas has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. I love Texas so much, I moved my family there for five years. Because here's the deal, Texas has it all. Are you a beach person? We got you. If you love a rugged vacation, not my jam, but there's plenty of campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. My favorite part about Texas, the food. It is the thing I miss 
the absolute most. Whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash get your own to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get your own. Now, how do we walk the line between allowing them to make decisions for themselves, allowing them to discover that still small voice and to listen to that inner wisdom. And also there are some things that we have to do as a family together to like keep the ship running. So and I'd be really curious your perspective on this, but in my home, if you use a dish, like you need to rinse the dish and put it in the dishwasher. This is just all what we all do because we're humans living in a house together and we're helping each other out. And you know, teenagers like push back on that a little bit, but it's just sort of the way that we function. What's the difference or what's that line between there are things that we do as a family. These are sort of our family values that we're going to do to make this life a bit easier on all of us. And we want you to have the freedom to be who you are. Yeah. uh, You actually just gave the answer. So I'll just (laughs) call it out of your own question. Uh, There's a doing and there's a being. Conscious parenting is focusing on the being, but that doesn't mean we don't do. So we pick up the garbage, we, you know, flush the toilet, we brush our teeth. And the problem with many families is not that they don't know what the doing is versus the being. The problem is there's too much doing. So, yeah, you know, you can have a few doings uh, in the in the day. But if you stack up your kid with a lot of doings, like, oh, now we're going to separate the winter clothes from the summer clothes and the kid is four years old, you're going to get resistance. <laughs> Because the kid can't do too much, right? So you have to, there's doing, but keep it keep it within the developmental age appropriate, right? The other day, a parent said to me, you know, I, I what do you think, Dr. Shafali, of my six-year-old, you know, making her bed and put, putting her clothes in the hamper and getting ready and having a shower and coming down and having a smoothie and helping me make breakfast? I was like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. What are you expecting a six-year-old to do? So we actually air too much on the doing and then we are entrapped, right? I was like, the kid cannot make the bed. The kid at six cannot make the bed and do that and do that. So maybe twice a week they make their bed. Like you ease them into this, right? Like when a kid comes home tired from school, you should hear the instructions coming out of your mouth, right? Put your backpack away. Put your shoes away. Now go wash your hands. And then come on, let's eat for 12 minutes. And then let's start our first activity. I mean, what do we expect our kids to do? Kids live in the being state. So of course they need to do. But be careful if everything is a doing and a law and a rule, then you and and you yourself are going to be your worst enemies because you have one long list that you've decided all needs to be done by 7 p.m. And children don't run by machine. You know, you know, you, you're looking for the button. There isn't a button. So be careful because children actually are not mini yous, mini adults. They're not. They're children. So children by nature need to be in a lot of being and a lot of ease and relaxation. They're not meant to go for 10 activities every week. They're really not. 
So we in this mad culture have overemphasized so much structured, instructional doing, and we've taken out the play, we've taken out the unstructure, we've taken out the free time, we've taken out the dream state, and that's why we suffer because we are going against the grain of what childhood is about. And I actually talk about that a lot in my book. It's my new book called The Parenting Map. I talk about how to stay in the play state, how to stay in the connected state. Children need connection. They don't need to go for an art exhibit at the MoMA. They really don't. They don't don't need to go skiing in the Alps. They really don't. (laughs) They just need a childhood. And we have really robbed them of their childhood. Again, because of the way we were raised and the way we're taught to raise our children. Are there some activities that you feel like should be a part of every child's day? Or I'm sort of thinking of my two youngest, which is 10 and 5, coming home from elementary school. And they do come home and they are tired. And I have, you know, I want them to go outside and play because I want them to be in nature. I want them to move around and climb a tree and do whatever. But I'm going to be honest with my 10-year-old son, if I'm not kind of go do an art project, go do a, you know, it's I'm bored. And if he's bored, what he wants then is technology. And I feel like I'm fighting a 10 year old who wants to watch a YouTube instead of like being a kid the way that I was when I was little. So how do you manage that? Yeah. So the young parent like you, I'm going to call you a young parent of young kids. Yeah. I'm going to give that to you today. Uh, You are, even though you've had kids in other decades, but right now you're dealing with young children. It's really a challenge. I mean, I raised my daughter's 20, so I'm out of this technological inundation. And I have to say, it's so challenging because that is the default, right? Before, yeah, sure, we wanted to watch cartoons on TV, but they only came on certain times and days. Right, right. We didn't get the TV in our pocket, right? So now the kid has it in their back pocket all the time. So you're always battling that. And if you're tired and distracted, you're going to be like, okay, just go on the computer, right? Because it seems so easy. So what I would encourage parents of young kids to really, below the age of 12, to really understand that technology is like crack cocaine for a young mind. So give it, I mean, like, I mean, give it sparingly. That doesn't really <laughs> sound right. But if you are going to give it, you have to give it really, really sparingly because it's so addictive. So what does that mean? Yeah, it means that you have to be more present. You have to be more connected um, and let them be bored and tolerate them and yourself in that boredom because they can become beasts, right? Mom, 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 YouTube, YouTube, YouTube. And they can wear you down. But I think before the age of 12, we have to be really strong now as parents, even more than I was as a parent, because because of this addiction. It's right around the corner and it leads to isolation. Yeah, many parents tell me that, oh, but my kid is interacting with other kids. It doesn't matter. That's not real interaction, right? That's That's virtual interaction. So while that's better than zero, it's not ideal. And especially for boys who tend to go toward video games and play it for hours, you have to be even more cognizant as a parent. But I'm not going to lie and pretend it's easy. And I'm not going to guilt trip the parent who is exhausted herself and the single mom who just like whatever. It's okay, You know, your your kid is not going to die. But I, I just want parents to, as much as possible, tolerate the boredom. 
That's really what it is. If you can tolerate the boredom, your kid will eventually, after 20 minutes of driving you stir-fried crazy, will find something to do. But it's yeah. those 20 minutes, 20 minutes of hell that you have to endure. Because the kid is just pulled to it, you know. It's too attractive. Look at us with our phones. It's too attractive. Uh, I have to stop myself from going on my phone as well. So I can only imagine how it is for the kid. It's like Candyland, right? Every day at their fingertips. So yeah. there's no easy answer. But I think you have to be extra conscious, extra strong. When I first discovered your work and heard you speaking about parenting, I remember you were talking about I'm going to not say this beautifully. You'll say it beautifully. But essentially that people have children to sort of try and get what they didn't have when they were little. And you're not even conscious of it. You're just sort of like, okay, now I will do this thing. And I, this is probably such a controversial thing to say, but I think it a lot. I feel like you are the perfect person to talk about it with. The amount of women, myself included, who have children because they're not really sure who they are or what they're supposed to be doing. And this is like what society tells us to do. And a baby's like beautiful and wonderful. And that seems like a fun idea. So you do that thing. I was so unconscious when I was in my early 20s. And I didn't know better. And of course, the beauty is he's 16. And I wouldn't trade anything for him. But I do think that oftentimes that decision really comes at a, a massive cost to who we are because it delays our ability to sort of go inward. And the more kids you have, the more there is a delay. I think, again, it's just my opinion. But I see this happen a lot with my friends, with women I know where it's like they get to this crossroads, they're not really sure what to do. So they go, I'll have a baby. Can you sort of speak to the the psychology or or what that is that we're trying to like manifest or do something and it comes out as a baby instead of like sort of our inner child work? Right, right. Well, it's a little, a little complicated because we do have this biological need and our biology is built for having this. So on one hand, there's an instinct to be maternal, right? But that instinct to be maternal was supposed to be within a tribe. We were supposed to be with other aunties and grandmothers, and we were supposed to have sisters to help us, like our, our sororal community. Yeah. And so the woman is first separate from that, right? So she's been taken out of that context. Then she uses it to distract herself 100%. And because culture has told her a good, good human, a good mother, a good wife, a good female is, is something that is her mandate. And then we are the further acts, the bigger acts is that we are told that we are selfish. Motherhood is selfless. Now that is the biggest lie. Because the way we are doing it right now is completely self-absorbed, right? We don't see how we are using our children to be all that we could never be and the best versions of the best person that we could never even be. And how when that child is not how we get so upset, how we get so disgruntled, how we project onto them, right? And that's what conscious parenting teaches is how are you using your child to complete yourself? How are you not seeing that this child is completely their own ultimate sovereign authority and they have really no obligation to you? They have no obligation to you. And parents will go, but I raised them. 
And I go, yeah, you raised them. You did it. Now, if they do respect you, it should come not out of obligation. It should come out of a natural bonding and connection. But when we obligate our children to give us their respect, it's because of our ego. Our ego needs that. Natural bonding occurs through organic connection, through a blossoming of deep attunement. It doesn't come out of obligation. So whenever parents, you know, sometimes moms will call me and say, he didn't even give me a Mother's Day call. He didn't even call me on Mother's Day. I said, yeah, because he's not looking to fulfill you up. He is living his life. So you call them on Mother's Day and say, wow, thank you for making me a mother because it was your decision. But so much of our motherhood and parenthood is about what we will get back. Yes, yes. We want respect back. We want gratitude back. We want connection. We want our children to want us. We want our children to need us. And that's our sickness. The greatest mandate of a conscious parent really is to make yourself irrelevant where your child doesn't feel they need to even call you or or write to you or not because they're cold-hearted. It's because they see you as a whole human being, you know? You know, the other day I was telling my, my friends that, oh, my kid, you know, doesn't, like, doesn't even ask me how I'm doing. I'd have to be dead, literally, and look dead. Uh, and she'd have to be convinced of it before she stops her day, you know. And they were laughing and they said, you know, the only way to get our kids to give us, you know, some compassion is to really start playing dead and play victim and like start crying like our mothers did, you know, the victims that our generation of women were. And we were laughing at that because we will not do that. I will not do that. And neither would my friends because we are okay. And and because we're okay, our kids see us as okay, but then they don't check up on us, right? And we want them to check up on us. But that's the trade-off. Your kids need to look at you as a whole empowered human being. That is such an amazing thing for them. But we will not get perhaps the Mother's Day call. But that's okay. We're not here to use them for that. So that's a little bit of a trade-off, right? Our kids, when you raise kids to be free, guess what? They are free. And sometimes then we don't like that, right? Because we want the trophy. We want the best mother prize every day from our kids. I love you, mom. Thank you, mom. Right? That's what we really want. But that's not a free kid. That's an obligated kid. So which kid do you want? You said the thing about respect. Uh, This is something I hear because I have two teenagers and we I, I host dinners a lot for their friends. So we'll have a house full of teenagers. Everyone's talking. And so one of the things that I hear a lot from other teen parents is this idea of a teenager being disrespectful. They're disrespecting me. And when I ask what that means, it's usually a challenge to just anything that's different than the way that parent thinks. They see it as a sign of disrespect. And I'm like, oh, did they did they raise their voice? Did they? And they're like, no, but I said this is the way it is, and this is the way it is. And and he's being disrespectful if he And I'm like, whoa, this is wild. Like you're trying to create, I don't know, like you. You're trying to recreate you and you want them to be exactly like you. And it's so stressful to parents when children sort of step outside of that. I'm positive I'm, you know, guilty of this in some respect, but I'm not trying to raise another version of me. In fact, if I'm proud of anything, it's that I have four little weirdos who are just so unique individuals. None of them really match each other. They're all just, and I'm positive I'm messing up in other ways, but this idea that 
a child is being disrespectful if they don't think like you think, it, it like sort of hurts my heart. Is that something that you can speak to if someone is listening to this and they're like, yeah, I feel like my teenager is being disrespectful, but perhaps on closer inspection, it's just that they disagree? Absolutely, 100%. You know, when we say our child is being disrespectful, that is a complete farce. It's a lie that we tell ourselves. It actually doesn't even exist. Disrespect doesn't even exist. Even if your kid is saying, F you, F off, I hate you. In fact, if they're saying that, that means they're in deep trouble, that they are feeling so disconnected, that they are feeling so lost. You know, so this, I, there's no such thing as disrespect, except if you think of it in conventional terms and are full of your own ego. If you're full of your, your own ego, everything can look like disrespect, really. Anything can look like disrespect. I had a client once whose kid rolled his eyes and that's all he did. And she was like, do you see, do you see Dr. Shafali? He's so disrespectful. He rolled his eyes. So I said to her, oh, were they your eyes? I mean, I'm sorry, I misunderstood it. Your eyes or his eyes? And she, she, she didn't get it, right? She's like, his eyes, his eyes. I go, oh, they are his eyes. And maybe, maybe the eyeballs belong to you. Maybe the lashes, I, I'm, I'm not understanding. And she, she didn't get it. She was like, he rolled his eyes. I was like, yeah, because they're his to roll. That's, that's his priority. He didn't even say a word to her, but she felt disrespected because she's looking to be respected. If you're looking for respect, then most things are going to look like disrespect. But if you're looking to connect to your kid, then nothing can look like disrespect. Then you're just going, wow, you are, you're going through something. Wow, you're really angry with me. Wow, how did I mess up? Wow, tell me more, right? When your kid says F you, you're like, oh my goodness, I've really fucked up. Or my kid is really feeling fucked They're in trouble. Either way, it's nothing to do with your sense of well-being. It has nothing to do with you. But you can only achieve this, this so-called impersonal detachment, this place of equanimity, when you're not looking for your kid to fill you up in any way. When you're not looking for your kid to give you anything emotionally. When you expect to get nothing emotionally, now you can connect to who your kid is. Otherwise, you're always looking for them to fill you up in some way. And then their C grade means something for you. Their lack of participation in the tournament means something about you. Their not being invited to prom means something to, about you. All of it is about you. You're so right. And it honestly, it, I'm glad that you added that in because I think people could be dismissive of this idea that like you don't need something emotional from them because most of us are going through life wanting our partner, wanting our friends, wanting our children to to be giving us something back. We're not even aware of it. But it's a great question to ask yourself how much you associate your children's successes or failures as your own. I, I was talking to another parent about this recently and the best affirmation I can give you is they're really good kids because they are. And any time that they do something that steps outside of that in your mind, that you should see it in the same way you would look at a raging fever. A raging fever on your 10-year-old would tell you, oh my gosh, something's wrong. And as his parent, it's my job to figure out what's going on with him that this is happening. 
I said, if you see something that you see as them being disrespectful, think of it in the same way. Because the boys, I mean, the boys especially, like they don't react in that way unless they had a really hard day at school. One of their friends said something that hurt their feelings. They're feeling a certain way. So if they do something that I think most people would look at as disrespect, immediately my reaction is, oh, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? Like, was school okay? I don't get angry. It actually like pulls me down into a more grounded place because I think something's wrong with my kid because they would never typically act like this it's so outside their character. It has nothing to do with me. I'm not taking this moment personally. I want to figure out what's going on with them on a deeper level. Yes, but that's such a beautiful reframe. And it's actually the truth. It's not about the parent. Don't take it personally. In fact, the more if your kid yells and screams and bangs doors in your face, the more they are feeling out of sorts. Yes, they are dumping it on you. And maybe you need to look at what you're doing as well. But it's definitely not because they're evil, not because they're inherently cruel. Now, you have three boys. Watch when your girl becomes 12. It will be eight, eight long years of hell, right? Yeah. I just knew once my daughter started her period, and I'm just using that as a benchmark, and she's 20. I'm waiting. I'm waiting till she turns 28 for this to end, right? I knew it's a long haul. You know, I tell all parents of teenagers, that's it. The alien ship came, they took your kid and, you know, your kid's gone now and aliens are there in their place, in their, in their <laughs> place. So if you understand that, you're not expecting logic. You're not expecting, you know, uh, rational behavior. You're not expecting anything. From 12 to 28, surrender. It's now going to be a shit show. If you get days of calm and days of beauty, lap them up, but don't expect anymore because your kid is in hormonal hell. They are going through hell. And we don't appreciate that about teenagers because they give us hell. We don't realize they are going through hell. I have so much compassion and they can be vicious. You watch when your daughter becomes 15, 16, like girls can be vicious, right? But every time my daughter slammed the door in my face and told me, you know, I'm the worst mom or whatever, mom, you're useless or mom, I hate you. I was like, oh, my poor baby, my poor baby, you know? Not that I condoned it and I didn't dare enter the room, but I also <laughs> didn't it personally. And when she came out and was normal, quote unquote normal, I would say things like, oh, okay, I see you were having a hard time, you know? And I could I could jab her a little bit like, is Maya back? Hello, is Maya back? <laughs> you know? And I would just laugh it off because I, I know how treacherous those years are. But all of childhood is treacherous for ch children growing up with adults. They are in a landmine, in a culture that doesn't support children, and in a culture that pits children against children, in a culture that now has social media raging across their screens, telling them that they're not good enough. So our children need to have empathy from us and a very compassionate, easygoing approach. And uh, But we have to really enter that place of releasing our children from creating our identity. I found myself a lot, you know, my oldest three are boys, and then my youngest is my daughter. And I have really, I mean, what, what a freaking ride that has been to have a girl and to watch, oh, 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 this old way of thinking or this old way of being is falling out of my mouth right now. And 
I know I am not the only person who is taking part in this conversation or listening to this or watching it who has a very strong-willed daughter. And I have a very strong-willed daughter. And she's so herself. She's such a unique creature. And I love that about her. And I have to work really hard to not you know, try and mold her the way I was molded when I was little. But what I'm really interested to get your perspective on is she started kindergarten this year. And that has been very challenging. Every day, literally every day, there was a note home from the teacher. And by the way, they never call her dad. They only call her mom to tell me that she's having a hard time sitting still, having a hard time keeping her hands to herself. Um, a boy pushed her, so she put him in a chokehold. Like, and you know, I hear this and I'm like, well, good for her. I don't know. Like she's defending herself, but she's just, she's big, you know, she's a big personality. And I, I, how do you deal with a, a school system, a teacher, and you know, a place that sort of says, this is how a little girl's supposed to be when you have a different perspective of just allowing her to sort of figure it out. Uh, I want her to get along. I don't want to get a phone call every day. But at the same time, I feel a bit like this is cultural norms that I never experienced with her brothers that is happening because she's a girl. Yeah. So, you know, it's tricky because many times people don't have options, right? They're single parents. They are more impoverished. So they have to send the kid where they have to send the kid. Yeah. And where that'll be is a system that in indoctrinates them on very rigid gender lines. So that's what you get in the public school or the private school. Many private schools are as gender-based and biased as any other. If you have resources and if you can, then you try to you know, send your kid at least to the age of six or seven to a more free-spirited school where they understand that at this age, children need to explore, need to take risks, need to make mistakes, and they shouldn't be castigated and reprimand, reprimanded and shamed. But it's really hard. You're talking about a very rigid system, public or private, that wants to manage little beings called our children. And it's been going on for eons and generations and it's very toxic because the premise of a school is to school your kid, which means to indoctrinate them in an institution. And they have grades, they have systems, they have rankings, they have comparisons. They are, you are now sending your kid. I mean, I, I remember dropping my kid off at school and going, have a great day. But I fully knew I just dropped my kid to the slaughterhouse. I mean, it's that bad, in my opinion. Now, I'm not against teachers. I'm not against private. I'm not against public. I'm against the indoctrination. And teachers themselves feel trapped in the indoctrination. They entered the teaching profession to inspire and to be creative and to, to set free-thinking individuals out into the world. And then they are mired in this bullshit system of rigid norms and grades, which is really toxic. So everyone's in the system. No one knows how to get out of it. So send your kid to school if that's your only option. But please back off on the grades, back off on the rigidification. You know, tell your daughter, you know, I'm sorry, this is what you're this is what we need to do in the school. But at home, you can be big. At home, you can do whatever you need. You don't need to get A grades. You you can be who you are at home. 
I mean, what to do? The system sucks, right? So when my daughter used to get homework every day, she used to hear me talk about how homework is so, you know, dysfunctional, so toxic. They spent their whole day at school. They don't yes. need to come home to do yes. some more bullshit work, right? So I used to tell her, listen, this is bullshit in my own way. I used to tell her, like, this is nonsense. Can you just do it? Can we just do it? You know, here, just do it. And you can write how you like, be as messy, get it all wrong, just do it. Because this is what the system needs. So I taught her very early on, it's a system. I'm so sorry. I can't homeschool. You know, I wasn't one of those parents. So I was like, whatever. But I'll make the system pal- palatable and bearable for her, you know, in, in terms of taking off all my expectations. Even now, she's in college and she hasn't checked her grades for the last semester. And I texted her and I said, you know, I don't care. Please, you know. But I just need to know how much more I need to pay if you failed all your, you know, obviously she didn't fail all of them. But can we please just go and check the grades? And she said, I don't want to. I go. I said, I know, I know it's, it sucks that we have grades. We shouldn't even have grades at this point, right? I'm paying the school. Why do you need to give my kid grades? Just pass or fail her. That's all we need. That's real, yeah. You know, but the kid is now so afraid, right? So I keep telling her, just, you got to do it. It sucks. Let's just do it together. Who cares? You know, we'll figure it out. So I'm always making it easier. So if parents do that for their children, knowing that this is a system, then at least you've taken out all the pressure, right? But what parents do in opposite is that they revere the system and they tell the the kid that this is like the most amazing place I'm dropping you off at, like clueless. And the kid knows that this is boring. This is unfathomably, you know, treacherous. I'm not going to do calculus when I'm 25. Why am I doing this nonsense? At least we should validate the kid's experience. You're right. It's nonsense, but we have to do it. Come on. Right. You did it. I do it. We all have to do it. Let's do it. But at least validate the kid's experience that it's like, wah, 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 wah. And, you know, what to do? They have to go through this. It's not interesting. The, the system has not made it beautiful, but we're all in the system. So acknowledging the system, but also easing the pressure is the best way to do the middle ground, you know? Tell your kid, you know, I don't know what's with this teacher. She loves to write me notes, you know? But can you please, with this teacher, can you just do what she needs because she's a pain in the neck, right? And and we're afraid that that'll mean the kid will be disrespectful. No, kids know. Kids know how to play the game. What is treacherous for the kid is when we yell at them and invalidate their experience and make the teacher right. No, the teacher's not right. She shouldn't be sending notes home. She should handle the kid. Right. So, you know, once my kid was in eighth grade and she was very disrespectful to the teacher, like told the teacher that this is wrong and you shouldn't have done this, like talking back to the teacher. Right. But everything my kid said was right. She she was right. The teacher was obnoxious. She was being mean to the kids. So my kid spoke up. But then we had to go to the principal's office. And then all my old stories around being a good girl at the principal's office were coming up for me. But I was able to heal that voice and that inner child of mine and go, no, I'm going to speak up for my kid in ways that I was never allowed to speak up. I'm not scared of the principal and I could advocate for my kid. Um, So in all these ways, we parents can support our children better. That is so good. I'm so glad you said that because I had months of getting these notes, getting these notes, and I didn't feel like it was right, but I wasn't even conscious that I was reverting to being a good girl. Like, oh my gosh, 
I'm in trouble. My daughter, I was getting notes about my daughter, but I felt like I was in trouble. And every single time I got a no, I was like having a full anxiety, like a kindergarten teacher is- You gave her power, guess what? We won't change the system. What? But that's what happens. The system replays itself, repeats itself. Now we're feeling nervous, right? We're like, oh my God, the teacher hates me. I don't want to go to parent-teacher <laughs> meeting because yes. she's going to judge me. Who the F is this teacher, right? No, no right. disrespect to the teacher. Right. No, it's just an but, example. Yes. But the teacher's caught up in her own bullshit from her childhood. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. She thinks this is the right thing to do. We need to go educate the teacher and go, listen, beautiful sister of mine, I love you, but you're caught up in the same bullshit as I'm caught up in. We need to help each other. Listen, we have this very unique wild spirit here. You were submerged. I was suppressed. Let's not do this to this beautiful girl. Let's work together because every time you send a note to me, my little girl collapses and then I become mean to my beautiful spirit. And I don't want to do that. So can you help me do this differently? Because that teacher is also in her own pattern of trying to control the kid. But it, it is real. And I'm so glad you said that because it took me a very long time to understand that I was internalizing when my kids would get in trouble as if I had done something. But I that's their experience. They did this thing. These are the consequences. We're going to deal with it. My daughter wears like very revealing clothes, right? And she's like, mom, I, this is who I am. And I'm a panic attack, not because she's doing anything wrong panic attack that other women will judge me like what's wrong with you you have no control over your kid and but I had to become easy into myself and ease into she's her own person she's got her own body and 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 of course there are risks but me telling her that is only going to be heard by her as me not validating her life experience so you know you'll see when your kid when your girl girls are a whole other you know kettle of fish so when you get there but I had to not take it personally. And sometimes my girlfriends would say, wow, your daughter is da-da-da-da-da, very judgmental and snarky. And I used to say, yeah, that's, my, that's your opinion of my daughter. It has nothing to do with me. And I actually wouldn't even defend her. I was like, you can have any opinion about my daughter that you like. You are free and she is free. But that took a lot of growing up, you know. So, you know, I, I told my dad, you know, you can have any opinion about her Please just don't tell her. Or if you tell her, run the risk that she will not come and talk to you, right? You do what yeah. you want to do. But but I, I had to release myself from defending her and getting angry with them. It wasn't my battle. You know, after 17 or 18, I told myself that my daughter's battles are not mine personally, you know? Yeah. Of course, I love her, but they're not about me. Well, it also... It's worth asking yourself for people listening, at least this is what I do. When I'm having a more intense reaction in parenting than the situation calls for, it's usually because somehow this is a mirror for me. They're doing something that's reminding me of when I was nine or what that time I got called to the principal's or whatever it was, is mirroring something that you talk about and like, how does that manifest with our kids if listeners have never heard about it before? Oh my God, every moment that we have an emotional storm, sometimes we may not show it. So we have to be aware of our emotional storms. Sometimes it comes out in huge explosions. Sometimes it's internal. We may go eat too much. We may drink. We may not even know that we are in an emotional storm because we're just acting out. So becoming aware, 
And then, yes, every time, I used to tell myself, every time you raise your voice, lose your shit, you get upset or are worrying about your child, it has nothing to do with your child. Now you have touched a wound that is unresolved for yourself. I take every misbehavior of mine as an invitation to ask myself, what's really going on? What are you really scared of, Shafari? I disguise it. We parents disguise it as, oh, I'm just scared my kid won't get into college or I'm scared my kid will be a drug dealer. I'm scared my kid will be pregnant. All this bullshit we tell ourselves, it's not true. All those fears are coming up because of our own insecurity from an old childhood place. So we have an invitation. That's why children are our greatest mirrors. We have an invitation every day when we lose our shit, which is almost every day in some way or the other, to go back inside ourselves. You know, small things like we eat dinner at seven o'clock, right? Now we're losing our shit at 7.20 because no one's at the dinner table or no one's focused. Or we, we thought we'd have a lovely family kumbaya dinner and everyone's throwing food at each other, right? Or no one's, no one's connected. So even that is an invitation to ask, why seven o'clock? Why does everyone need to talk? Why does he need to sit at the table? And then the old you know, machinery will say, well, because good families sit together and eat together. Oh, really? Let's talk about that. Uh, is your family not a good family because they don't sit together, right? So all your cultural upbringing comes into focus and you're begged to answer, why is this coming up for me right now? Why seven o'clock, right? Who said, right? So my daughter, when she was young, she didn't like breakfast food. So she used to say, I want a piece of chicken or whatever. I want some pasta. And I was horrified. I was like, that's not breakfast food. And then I had to ask, well, what is breakfast food? Who decides what's breakfast food? Who said, some industrial complex called the USDA or whatever it is called said to me or the FDA said that this is breakfast food. Who said? Hunters and gatherers didn't have breakfast food. They just had what they had, whatever they got. So in all sorts of beautiful ways, we get to deconstruct this. And that's what I really do in my book, The Parenting Map. So grab a copy. It's it step by step deconstructs all the lies we've been told and how to replace them with more meaningful constructs so that you can stay in the present moment with your kid and not be bombarded with all the shoulds of culture. Oh my gosh, so good. We went in a thousand directions today and I feel like it works because you have so many books that touch on different aspects of parenting. So if listeners want to take a deeper dive, if you said one thing that they want to sort of go in that direction, they can find all of that wisdom. But before I let you leave, I feel like we have to go back to where we started. At the top of this conversation, you were like, there's a way that you can know if you're an ego or if you're sort of, and I feel like that is the thing as a listener, I would latch on to and be like, oh, they didn't, they didn't explain that. So before you leave us, will you share that wisdom? Yes. So it's really hard to know by the time you're in your 20s or 30s. What is really you? Like, is my taking care of my sick partner something that's really me? Or is it I'm being a conditioned good girl, right? Is my not asking for a raise really me? Or is it me being a scared, compliant, you know, person at work? Who is the real me? Well, it's a journey. We have to begin to start uncovering and unlayering because it's been years of suppression. So we begin by asking, hmm, is this... Is this me that I'm showing up as right now coming from a place of abundance? Is it coming from fear? 
you know, and this is my first question. Is it coming from a place of scarcity? Like I need to do it. I, I'm scared because I'll lose the approval. I'm doing it because I'm scared. Or is it really coming out of an, a place of overflow, like this abundance, this presence, this joy? And let me tell you, I did this experiment in my own marriage. And I, I challenged myself that for the next 24, 48 hours, I will keep asking, is this coming from fear? Is this authentic? Is this coming from fear or is it authentic? And until it comes out of true authenticity, I won't talk, right? I won't say anything. Damn, I, I, I literally found everything was coming out of a place of bullshit because wow. I was just managing the other person's expectations, managing the other person's moods, you know, and with our children, of course, we are obligated to do that, right? Even if we don't want to give them breakfast, we got to give them breakfast if they're hungry, right? So please, let's not confuse this kind of questioning with people who are in our care, people who are in our care that we invited into this world, such as our children or our dependent animals, please go put the dog food out, right? Even if you don't feel like, but I'm talking about mutual 50-50 adult relationships, or even with our children after the age of 13, 15, 18, we get to ask, you know, is this genuinely me? And we we shouldn't dump and run the per- run away from the person and go well sorry that's not authentic and that person is like hey but you always used to pick up the mail for me you know we need to ease the other person into our new selves but we we got to start delineating what is coming from a true place and the only way to do that is by asking by digging in by taking that pause by by saying hey i'm not going to answer the invitation right now i'm going to check in with myself even with our friends hey I, I don't know whether I can say yes right now. Let me check in and and make that self-inquiry every day because our true self has been so deeply suppressed that we don't know now whether it's true or not. So we need to go through this experiment. We need to go through this quest where we ask, is this really me? And we will be surprised by how much has been superfluous junk that we've just collected people places, things, and events in our lives just to distract ourselves to be the good girls. So this requires a an inward journey of asking, is this real? Is this true? Is this me? You know, many times we answer texts just because we're good text answerers, right? We don't, especially texting, right? We feel like, oh my God, because the person sent the text, now we need to answer, especially good girls. And guess what? You don't need to answer right now. In, in And all across the board, you don't need to give up your power right now. You don't need to know what the solution is right now. And you don't need to say yes right now without doing an inquiry. Oh, my gosh. Dr. Shapali, this has been such a gift. I wish we could talk for eight hours. So I hope this is the first of many conversations we get to have on the show. Uh, if listeners are wanting to get more where do you suggest they start? Do you think they start with conscious parenting and then work up to where you are now? Or do you start with the new book and go backwards? As a book nerd, I always like where where do we begin this journey together? Yeah. So of course, I would love them to start with my new book because I do cover all the principles. And the new book is called The Parenting Map. But they can also go on my Instagram. There's so many courses because I've broken it all down in, in real practice workshops. 
And I also have a coaching institute. If people want to become coaches in their own lives or for others, they can get trained in how to do this for themselves in a real deep way. Uh, but thank you for having me. I'm such a fan as well. And I'm so grateful that you allowed your audience to hear this and, and to go deeper on their path in conscious parenting. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.